At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Companies. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I believe every one of us listeners are familiar with the expression, it takes a village. It takes a village. Meaning that for children to grow up in a safe and in a healthy environment, they need a lot of individuals, a lot of love around them. They need it from the entire community because it takes a village. And all the young parents out there recognize the truth of that. And yet, my friends, and yet when the global lockdowns heighten feelings of loneliness and isolation, today's guest, her name is Florence Ann Romano, had a realization Our villages take us well beyond our childhoods. So it takes a village not only to raise a child, it takes a village to live a good life. In fact, it's been found that those with a strong village, a strong community, a strong support system are living not only happier, healthier lives, they're living longer lives than those that do not have it. Today, our guest, Florence Ann, is going to guide us through how to build lasting and meaningful connections that define the grounding foundation in your village. You're going to leave this conversation inspired to build up your village, to let love in, and to gain the courage to ask for help. That takes a lot of courage. So my friends, thank you for having the courage right now to lean into the Live Inspired podcast. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal and pen, something to sip on. And get ready to let the love in with our new friend. Her name is Florence Ann Romano. Florence Ann, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm so, so thrilled and honored to be here. Well, we are, we're about a five-hour car ride apart right now. I'm down here in St. Louis. You're way up there in Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. When you have an opportunity, whether it's a Wrigley Field or Bang Bang Pie Shop, of introducing yourself to a new friend, how do you like to introduce yourself? I would like to say that I, I head up most of my conversations with my favorite quote, Maya Angelou. Uh, I always like to say that if I could describe myself in any way, she does it best, that people will forget what you said, people forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And Mm -hmm. if my interaction with anyone in life leads to any sort of result, it would be that I make you feel a certain way. That's what I would say to that. Tell me about that. What what is the way when you and I leave Wrigley Field and hug goodbye or a 
leave Bang Bang Pie Shop. We were talking about that before we started recording and say goodbye. How, how am I different after I met you? How are people different and better because they hung out with you? I grew up in a big Italian family. I grew up seeing and learning from my mom, my grandmother, you know, my nan and papa, my grandparents, my cousins, my extended family, that you show up for people. I think that's how I decided in this kind of subconscious way to live my life was by showing up for people and understanding what it meant to put love into action, what it meant for love to be a verb and how to create what I hope is an empathy effect in life. And it was because I was surrounded by those teachers in my life, those villagers in my life, that I learned how to do that. And I'm still learning how to do that. And that's truly what led me to, to write my book, Build Your Village. Awesome. We're going to be talking about the book, talking about the village, the villagers, the types that we are and how to get even better at the type that we uh, we strive to become. But I want to go through some of the formative experiences in your life, some of the people, some of the things that shaped you into who you are today. One of them is a concert. I've seen several different places in your own writing that your first real concert, go ahead and drum roll, please. <laughs> Celine Dion. Talk about the Celine Dion concert. My cousin took me and my younger sister, and I remember thinking, oh, we've never been cooler. I, this is the moment, you know, we're, we are ready to go. I've arrived. And I remember being a little girl, with, and I'm the oldest of four, um, and my sister is the third in line. And we would just be belting our hearts out, out in this little CD player in our room, and it just felt good to sing her songs. And it made you have all of those tingly feelings, those goosebump feelings. And so when we got to go see her for the first time, it was a star struck moment for me. And then being in that arena and watching that power, that emotional power come out of Celine Dion like that, I remember thinking, gosh, in life, kind of everything needs to happen to music. Doesn't that need to be the underscore of everything? So you have those goosebumps, those goosebump feelings and, you know, just that, that aha moment of like, oh, that's what it's supposed to feel like. Mm. So I suppose in life, I've always been chasing that, John, in some sort of way, chasing what it feels like to live your life with an underscore of beautiful moving music. Mm. Let's talk about some of the composers in your life who helped orchestrate that music with you as a little one. We could spend a lot of time on a lot of these individuals, but I just want to spend a little bit of time on three of them. The first is your grandmother. Yes. She sounds like a remarkable lady. Nana. Oh, gosh. I'm named after her, which is why my name is so old fashioned. Uh, and I, I hated it. Can I say, John? I hated that my name was Florence Yang growing up. You're little, that little girl in kindergarten and everyone else is like Jessica or Beth or Ashley. And then there's me. And I'm like, this is the worst name ever. And then as I got older, I loved it because it was a piece of my grandmother. And so Nana, she's been gone almost seven years now, but she was the love of my life. I was attached to her hip from the moment I was brought to this earth. I had a very full circle relationship with Nana. Uh, you know, she took care of me for my yeah. whole life. And then all of a sudden she was 
an older person and she needed help and she needed assistance. And I grew up again in that old school Italian family. My grandparents lived with us growing up. There was a point where I actually shared a bed with Nana. It was probably the, the top billing moment in my life of learning what it actually meant to be a caretaker, mm. what compassion actually looked like in action. Because caring for my Nana and Papa as they got older and also growing up with them in our household and learning how you respect your elders, learning what it meant to, uh, to understand empathy, yeah. learn what it meant to find the curiosity within yourself too, to be interested in their life the things that they learned, the mistakes that they made, how they taught you from their own life experience to kind of chart your path. I, there will never be another moment in my life, I think, that will ever probably rival what it was like to grow up with them within the walls of my house. You are who you are because of her and because of those shared experiences. What's the one characteristic that you think your grandmother, your Nana, helped elevate within you? I'm going to start crying even thinking about it. She had this unbelievable way of making whoever she was with in the room feel like the most important person in the world. I mean, she was focused on you, your mm -hmm. hopes, dreams, your fears, your love, your excitement, anything that you were feeling in that moment, she took it in. It was, it became her. Mm -hmm. I've never seen someone invest the way she did in people. <laughs> we, I, one of our listeners, the, the lady who runs Bang Bang Pie Shop being one of them, but another lives in Austin. Her name is Amy Geraci, a sister of mine who adored her grandmother. We all did. But right now, I promise you, as you are wiping your tears, my sister is wiping hers because we also saw that model of a person investing into others with joy, just yeah. totally joyful, joyfully investing into others. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about Nana. I told you there were three. The, the second is a kid born about 17 months behind you in the order. Would you talk to our listeners a little bit about your brother? My brother, Mikey. So I'm 37. Mikey's about to turn 36 uh, in March, which I can't believe. But Mikey, um, our sweet brother, uh, has autism. And he was diagnosed at two years old. There's a funny story that goes along with that, too, because I was the one that was doing all the talking. And Michael wasn't doing a whole lot of talking. And that was one of the first signs. And my mom said she remembers bringing me to the pediatrician, you know, when she was brought Michael. And the pediatrician's listening to her talk about how Michael's not reaching the same exact milestones as Florence Ann. And the pediatrician's looking at me, running around the room, talking who knows about what. And the pediatrician says, well, you know, you say Michael's not really talking, you know, but uh, Mrs. Romano, does he have a chance to talk with, with her as a sister? So we always joke about that. But, you know, Michael, as we grew up and we call him, you know, our Mikey, our sweet king, as we always say, uh, that's when I really saw Village Rally uh, was when, when I was younger, uh, seeing how my mom, who is truly an angel um how she took that diagnosis and it empowered her john mom how she 
how her spine became so tough and fierce in that moment. I don't like to take my life for granted and the things that I get to do and the people I get to meet and just how I get to live this neurotypical life that I do uh, because Michael's world is so different than mine. When you have a special needs brother or a special needs siblings in, in any way, how it shapes the way that you view the world. And I'll say it in two ways. I see the world and see it as absolutely beautiful. And the people in the world are beautiful. And there is a human nature attached to people that is spectacular, the humanity in them. And then there's the other side of it where humanity isn't so beautiful. <laughs> I've seen both those worlds and I will always see both those worlds because Michael allows me mm. access to it. I mean, we're changed by the folks that we do life in proximity with. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're Nana and then Mikey. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I danced between dad and mom on the third leader who guided you forward so successfully into life. There's a beautiful picture online of your dad. You're wearing like a doctor's stethoscope <laughs> and it's just, just this sweet picture. And you are so lit up. It's a beautiful five years old or whatever you were. And he's smiling broadly and just joyful. But I do want to focus on your mom. You you whispered her, and I want you to roar about her right now. You talked about how this movement, this 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 diagnosis, stiffened her spine. That's a cool expression. Many times when we get a diagnosis, we didn't ask for, it. we didn't pray for. It. That wasn't what we were expecting for our lives. It stiffens our spine toward negativity, mm -hmm. and we become a little bit more calloused. Mm -hmm. My read on your mom is it stiffened her more faithfully and more openly and more boldly. Would, would you talk about your mom's spine and her heart and her life as you saw her lead your brothers and your sisters forward in life? My mom, like I said, is, is an angel. She really, truly is. But what I, I think I, I look at my mom and really am marveled by is that she accepts so much on faith and hard work and determination and perseverance. And I know where she learns all this from. It's from my Nana and Papa. Those were two people that accepted what was in front of them and they made it something beautiful most of the time, even if what was given to them was the opposite. Yeah. But my mom, she had to be Mikey's advocate. She had to be the one that went out there and figured out what do I give this boy? Because let's remember back in the eighties, autism wasn't what it was today. People didn't really know what that meant. The world that Michael was going to live in, how that was going to look, how they were going to provide financially, what was life going to look like when they were no longer here? What was the burden that was going to be put on their other children to care for him? That is an enormous obligation that is given to you in that moment. And my mom went to work, any therapy, anywhere in the world, she was on that plane taking me in tow with her, any sort of therapy she could find, whether it was music, the right kind of speech therapist, anything she could find and to educate herself, to give him the best life she could, she did. I look at her today and I think to myself, you are everything. And I said this about my grandmother too, and I'm going to say it about her and she thinks she doesn't deserve it, but I'm going to say it for her benefit right here. My mother is everything that can't be taught, but must be learned. Mm. In life. 
I will chase it my whole life. I will chase figuring out how to take the magic of my mother, bottle that, and be able to make the world a better place because of just, just the, who she is. What a love letter, man. I mean, I, we'll, we'll try to drop this again around Mother's Day so you could say, hey, mama, have a listen to this one. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that can't be taught but must be learned, my mother modeled. High praise. She also taught it though well to you, her daughter, her oldest, her now leader of the three others who followed suit behind her. You started, I don't know what it's called when you're an older sibling. I still call it babysitting. When my <laughs> wife leads me to go out with the girls, I have to babysit my kids. I'm sorry, that's what I'm doing. I'm babysitting my kids. Some people might call that parenting. But you started you started babysitting at a young age, yeah. not only in the house, but outside the house. Right. What, what was it about babysitting that you fell in love with? I have always been all about babies, all about kids, even when I was a kid myself. So I used to say to my mom, mom, can you take me to the hospital so I can have my baby? And <laughs> like, who's saying that as like a five-year-old? That's a little weird. And what I meant by that was, can you take me to the hospital so I can have my baby? I want to go to the toy store so you can buy me a doll. <laughs> so that's really what it was. And I'd come home, John, and I would make birth certificates for all of my baby dolls. I mean, I was invested in kids from a young age. And so as soon as I could become a mother's helper at the age of 11, I was ready to go. And I was bopping around from different houses in the neighborhood and learning from all these moms and getting to be with all these kids. And it was the best experience of my life. And I was truly, truly yeah. joyful at that time. And it, it sparked something in me. It, it absolutely changed the course of my life. Tell me about that. Cause you, you, you did this not only like so many of us did, I babysat too growing sure. up. You did this not only as an 11, 12, 13 year old, 16, 19, when you came back from college, but you did it professionally for 15 years yeah. and you did it well. So uh, what <laughs> was it that it, what was it? What did it spark within you? I was sold out for kids. Uh, that's that's basically what it was. Is I I looked at the, I looked at the innocence that comes along with childhood, and you know this is a safe place, right? There's not it, this is doesn't work this conversation, John. If I'm not honest, and I think growing up, uh, I had incredible parents, but it didn't come without its challenges. And one of the things I looked at in my relationship with my father was he would always talk about the stuff with his dad that he wanted to change with us. And some of it he did, some of it he didn't. And he's honest about that. And yeah. I think growing up and having challenges with my own dad, uh, it made me think about, well, what do I wanna learn from this? so that I can help other children maybe not feel how I did in those certain moments that were vulnerable or hard or challenging, whatever it was. My father wasn't a bad father, but he didn't have, he had moments perhaps I know that he would That's go right. back and change. And that was a spark for me with children was making sure that I was an advocate for them in all the different ways that I possibly could. And the only way I could really feel honest about being an advocate is that I could put myself in their shoes and know what it felt like to be a child that was feeling the way they were. Mm. 
well, it's a critical piece of healing, which we'll talk about here shortly, be, being a healer in a marketplace that is longing for it. So part of what you may not have received perfectly at home, you want it to be in other homes that may not have received it either. Right. You told a story beautifully. I've heard you share this a couple of times of your brother, this sweet, innocent little Mikey and your dad, and he'd furrow his brow and anger would begin to almost erupt. And then this little boy would come over and just gently pull down the, the brow so it would be smooth again and peaceful again. And that desire to kind of smooth things out seems like something that Mikey did naturally, but you picked up on and you took this into the marketplace. You went to Bradley. What was your major at Bradley University? No shock to find that I was a performance theater major. <laughs> Most likely to run your own talk show coming out of high school. You yes. do exactly that. <laughs> you, you nannied for 15 years. And yeah. I think frequently when people hear that term nanny, they think, well, gosh, uh, those people, you know, really privileged people might have a nanny. Right. You remind us that 64% of us now, 64% have some type of help raising our kids. Would you talk about that for a minute? That's really where village comes into play. As I always say, it's not something that's trendy. This is a part of our lifestyle. This is a part of our world. It's not going anywhere. The common denominator here is that people need help raising their children. It's a beautiful lesson to be learned in allowing people in your life in that way to help you raise your children, because that's the mosaic, John. Yeah. The people that we become. It's that mosaic of the people that we surround ourselves with. And I love seeing that childcare has taken on this monumental role in that way. Uh, I think it was a big disservice for us to not talk about why childcare was so important and continue to have that conversation today about how do we support families? How do we support children and parents? Because those kids become adults one day and the people that surround them, you know, they say it starts in the sandbox. Yes. Well, it's our job as adults to put the sand in the sandbox. So who is helping put that sand in the sandbox? That's what I'm focusing on here is those caretakers, that village that we're talking about. That's where the secret sauce lies there's a lot to unpack within the sandbox. Mm -hmm. So let's just kind of go through it sequentially. Let's first talk about, well, let's talk about the work he did as a nanny before we unpack the village. Sure. You had a series called the Windy City Nanny and yes. 12 episodes or so, but yes. each of them beautiful. Two though that I want to call out and ask you a little bit more about. One is you were working with a family, beautiful family, and the woman had recently been diagnosed with MS. As a leader yourself who works with these families and their children, what's the encouragement you give to someone who's not tethered to a diagnosis they didn't sign up for, and they're trying to do their best loving their child going forward? I would say that that moment in that house, when I saw that little boy look at his mom, it made me really realize that not all superheroes wear capes that are visible to us there. You know, we've heard that saying before, um, but I saw it in his eyes, in the child's eyes that it, the things that ailed the mom, I suppose, is, had nothing to do with how he saw her. And that, mm. that to me was very powerful because I was seeing 
her in my, you know, we all see each other. We all see the world a certain way, but I could just see in that moment how he loved his mom, but also what, what didn't matter about his mom that maybe she thought mattered in terms of how well she was doing the job. And that to me was incredible just to see that. And we actually had that conversation, she and I later about how she felt Mm. about the job she was doing. And I said, gosh, don't you wish you could see from his perspective what he sees? And I think that's what that's a gift. I think that, oh gosh, could, could we do that? Could we give that to parents somehow? Right. I don't know that we ever will be able to let them see how children actually see them so different than what we think they see. Yeah. Purely mm-hmm. and without the cataracts and uh, with an open mind and open heart. I, I remember as a young parent myself, I have four now, but when I only had two and one, one of them was three, uh, I also was worried about how they saw me. I'm, I'm physically different than the vast majority of other dads out there. And I'm on a conference call, taking notes, eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich all at the same time. And I'm balancing the sandwich on my knuckles like this, Florence Ann. So man, I'm stepping into this thing, chewing into the sandwich on a call. And then I look down at my little Jack, who is three years old. He's at the little white table. Every family has that little white chairs. And he's looking up at his dad on the call and he's got the sandwich balanced on his knuckles and he's eating it just like his dad is teaching him. So our, our kids, I see, I think, see us in a perfect unfiltered lens. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're the ones ultimately that try to put definitions behind it and meaning behind it. But what that episode taught me was the power of being just accepting love from your kid and then ultimately returning that and being that safe place for these children great episode, but it was also equally sought after the next episode where you worked with a father who had recently lost his wife. And so this young dad is trying to, trying to now raise a family uh, Mm -hmm. without someone who said the words I do. So would you talk about that episode and what you remember about the advice you gave him? I remember walking into the house, actually, this is someone I know, um, uh, in my personal life. And I remember walking into his house, this is years before I actually did this interview, I did this episode with him. And it was days after he had lost his wife. And he was putting a a shirt on one of the the littlest girl. And you could tell he had been crying and and his his cheeks were a little wet. And he said to me, I just, I, I, I think we're doing okay. I think we're okay. I think it's okay. I I think we're all right. And he just kind of kept saying that without me having even asked him yet how he was doing. And my heart hit the floor. I can, I'm not even getting teared up thinking about it now because I remember watching that moment thinking your whole life just fell apart. Your whole life has completely changed. These little girls are so little and I, he, I could tell he was so worried about, yes, their transition, but also would they even remember her? Mm. Would they even remember their mother? And, and we had many conversations after that about the transition after, after he lost his wife. But when we ended up taping that episode, you know, a few years later, uh, when they had gone through their transition, 
the, the girls were, were sitting with me at one point while we were getting things set up and the camera set up and he was sitting with me too. And they said to me, without me saying anything that prompted it, we're so happy. We're happy. We're happy. Dad makes us so happy. We have a happy house. Mm. I kept saying that. And I looked at Andy and I said to him, if you ever doubt anything about what you've done from the moment you lost her to now, this, you need to remember this moment. This needs to live in your heart, branded on your heart. You need to feel it, smell it, taste it forever because this is the proof that you did it, that you survived it. And you don't even have to ask how. All you need to say is that I am thankful that I reached this moment. It's it's so touching. And I think all of our listeners have had dear ones <laughs> struggle with profound loss. And mm -hmm. so we hear the emotion in your voice, but we also feel it in our own experiences. And one of the quotes that I've heard you say several times, I've, I've read it in your book. So I'm going to read it aloud to everybody right now. And then it, have you explain it to us is this. I believe people want to ask for help, but they just don't know how to ask. So tell me, first of all, why you believe people want to ask for help. And then maybe even more importantly, why do you believe we just don't know how to ask? Because I'm that person. Because I'm that person, John, that thought asking for help was that sign of weakness that for a long time, I didn't really want people to see the nooks and crannies, the cracks and craters, the flaws. Uh, and as I got older and started making more and more relationships in my life and meeting more of my, my inner circle, um, I started realizing that the more I let them in, the more I was honest uh, with them about the experiences in my life or the imperfect moments or the struggles I was having, the more I got comfortable with being uncomfortable, it freed something in me. And I realized that if I feel this way, gosh, I can't be alone in this. We don't ever want to think we're the only one that feels this. We're like, this isn't just happening to me, right? This is happening to other people too. And I did start to find out that it, other people did feel that way. And gosh, that was a relief, first of all. <laughs> and, and after I realized that, I, I started paying attention to how I felt when a feeling would bubble up that I didn't necessarily know what to do with. And then how I felt after I kind of acknowledged that feeling, diagnosed that feeling, and then decided what I needed to do in order to feel better or heal or move forward or fix it or find the solution, whatever it was. And oftentimes I was talking that out with someone. Right. And then I would think about, okay, this is how I felt before. And this is how I feel on the other side of it after taking those steps. And usually the common denominator was that I was being honest with somebody about it. And I was asking someone not to fix it for me, but to walk next to me mm. through it, not around it, through, you know, through it with me. Uh, and that made a big difference about asking for help. And I realized that I'm never going to be perfect at it. There are going to be times where I will kick and scream and not ask for it because I just can't do it that day. But more often than not, it is an exercise. It is a practice, just like gratitude 
for me every day to get comfortable with asking for that help. So you're getting more comfortable with that ask and with the benefit of doing so. Seems to me though, like the rest of us are moving farther and farther away from it. And this is to yeah. our own detriment. Yeah. We, we're more socially connected than we've ever been. We have the freedom of traveling just about anywhere we want to go relatively quickly and safely. Right. We can pick up the phone and make a call. We're busier than we've ever been. Right. And we report in mass that we feel more isolated and lonely than we've ever felt. Mm-hmm. So how do these things all coalesce? How, how can we be so connected and so busy and in doing all these things and so alone and so isolated? Some of the busiest people I know, John, they have those calendars that are just filled to the hilt. It's a cobweb that you have to kind of explore. Uh, those people, uh, some of the loneliest people I know, because it's not about the quantity of people that you have in your life. It's not about the quantity of things that you have going on. It's about the quality of experiences in life, the quality of people. And for me, I've realized there are days I wake up and I am feeling super depleted, not just like I'm tired because life is busy. I'm feeling depleted emotionally and spiritually and every other way. And I am like, why, why am I feeling this way? I've been so busy. Isn't that what I need to be doing in order to fill up my cup? I've been busy. Well, that's not the key. The key is not busy. I'm busy with the wrong stuff right now is the issue. And that's what I, that, that, that moment too of recognition of being busy with the wrong stuff, that's like poison sometimes I feel because that's not going to get you anywhere at all. You need to be busy with the right things. But again, people out there are going to say to me, life is not like that. Life is busy and we can't just do the things that we enjoy. So it's how do we take care of ourselves and fill up our cup in a way that is going to allow to give us that balance. Mm -hmm. That word balance is an oxymoron to a lot of people, I think sometimes. So help us do that. Because you're right right now, as you're saying those words, someone's looking at their calendar and there is no white on it. It is all filled with ink mm-hmm. or little dates if they keep it electronically. And they're hearing you say, yeah, you're busy, but you got to take care of yourself and, and strive for balance. And they're thinking, how? How? I, I can't catch my breath. Well, balance, I feel like is a day-to-day operation. And some days you are going to feel more balanced than others, but the only way you're going to find that balance is if you figure out what are the things that are going to bring me joy. And it's not the quantity of the joy, it's the quality of the joy. So for me, for example, I know if I don't walk at some point during the day, even if it's 10 minutes around my block or 10 minutes on the treadmill, if I don't walk and get to listen to my music for those 10 minutes, I am going to go to bed that night a little angry. If we don't hear a little Celine Dion for 10 minutes a day, Florence Ann's done. My heart will go on. The only way it's going to go on is if I get those And so, you know, for me, that is my self-care. That 10 minutes that I need to myself that day is it. Now, I'll say it this way too. Maybe for those 10 minutes that I'm taking a walk around my block and listening to that music, I'm looking at my phone and I'm answering some emails. 
So I'm multitasking. I'm not just sitting on the floor, you know, meditating for 10 minutes. I'm actually doing multiple things perhaps, but I'm still doing something that's filling me up. So that's the secret sauce. Again, it's about figuring out how to be kind of crafty, how to be a little, you know, a little creative about how you fill yourself up in that way. Cause it's not an all day, you know, situation at a spa where you're turning off your phone and getting a massage and a facial and all this stuff. Again, it's, it's about getting creative with how you're filling yourself up. Well, and as you build your village, it's not only about what you're doing, but with whom you're doing it. Yes. So talk about that. Talk about building community. I grew up in a very tight knit community, I would say. And I said this to my mom the other day. It's funny you're bringing it up. I said, you know, I care what people think about me. And she's like, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I care. I care like what this community thinks of me. And, you know, we're taught in life as the older you get, you don't care as much what people think about you. And I, I understand that saying, but what I clarified to my mom was, I care what the people in this community think, Mo a lot of people in this community think of me because I respect them, because I respect the people that they are. And so I look at those people, this collection, this mosaic of people in my life that I respect. And I think, well, how do I wanna take those lessons and make that a part of my life and, and turn it forward in some sort of way. So I make a very concerted effort, John, to surround myself with people that are going to make me a better person. Uh, and it's not necessarily people that look like me, sound like me, subscribe to all my same values necessarily, were raised the same way I was. Uh, I'm looking for diversity in a lot of different ways to challenge me so I always have something to learn that I my dad always would say to me if you are the smartest person in the room that you are in you are in the wrong room and so I feel that way about community we need to put ourselves in different communities different villages to learn lessons so that we can be part of this this empathy effect as I keep saying that's how we learn so talk about that, because th this this is what it all distills down to. How how do you build out that village? How do you, when we're so predisposed to living in our one little block and going mm -hmm. to our one faith service mm -hmm. and hanging out on the weekends, doing the same things with the same people, mm -hmm. how do you elevate that community and that village in a way that benefits those around you, but also benefits you as a human being? In the book, I identify uh, six different villagers uh, that uh, have unique qualities. And the reason why, John, I, I chose to create villagers was because I feel like when we talk about building community, it seems very ambiguous. It seems like I don't understand what that means. People will say to me all the time, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book, you know, is there a number to call for the village that you're talking about or a roadmap, like some sort of directions? Right. I thought to myself, yeah, we need to really actually write directions to this village. We do need to, to figure out this roadmap. And so as I was establishing these villagers, I wanted people to be able to do that self-exploration, to look at their life as it is currently, the landscape of their life currently, and say, who in my life fits into these six villagers? And if I can't find all six of them, am I feeling like 
there are people missing? Do I need to cast those roles in my life? And then all of a sudden we're doing the magic. We're doing the work of building, building the village because we're using these six people to help us cast like a play who the supporting people are we need in our lives. And then beyond that, because we can't just look at what do I need? Who do I need in order to make right. sure that my life is full and purposeful? We need to figure out who am I to other people? Out of those six people, who am I in the villages that I am in? Who am I? And then that honest work that we're doing, that kind of, uh, that circle kind of that we're, 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 we're riding, um, that's where you actually start to, to find that foundation for those people. So I'm going to do something woefully unfair to you, but here it comes. I know it's unfair to make a, a parent choose their favorite child, but you've identified six villagers. <laughs> yes. And of the six, not which one do you model most brilliantly, or do you wish your spouse might model most brilliantly, or a child might model? But as you look at society, and yeah. how fractured we are and how divisive things are and how quick we are to anger. Is there one trait, one villager that you wish would rise and really um, really begin casting even a longer shadow? That is a hard, hard question, John. Like you said, you don't like to pick one, but I'm going to go with healer. Um, the healer villager to me is probably my special favorite. Um, and I, I say in the book, you know, the healer is the one that makes you feel better. And, you know, this goes back to the Maya Angelou quote, I suppose, that I, I said at the beginning about how you make people feel. But healer for me, uh, I talk about this idea that it's a lifestyle, what we're, yeah. what we're doing here, this work of, of the village is a lifestyle. And as I started workshopping that, as I wrote the book, I was like, no, nah, it's not really a lifestyle. It's not that. It's something else. What is it? And all of a sudden I realized it was love. It was a love style. And that's the common denominator with all six of those villagers is there is love laced all within all six of them. But that healer villager, I think for us in life, we all wanna be seen, heard and understood. That is, that is the magic right there. That's what I think I would love to be able to give to everyone in this world if, if I could. I think. I'm not, I think, I know, I don't know the meaning of life and I'm never going to be the one to claim that I know what it is, but I know what my meaning is. And that's to live a life in service of others. Mm -hmm. And I think the key to that is through healing. You write, and I think it's near the end of the book about meeting friends and family where they are as they are. Yes. So two questions. Number one, why is that so important? That's your layup. That will give you time to think about the second question, which is how do we do that? Because it's, it's yeah. very, very, very hard to love someone as they are rather than just as we want them to become. Right. So right. why does that matter? And then how do we do that more effectively? This goes back to the idea of showing up for people. Uh, you know, meeting someone where they are instead of where you want them to be necessarily, you know, that, that is a living, breathing organism. This is us giving people grace, John, in life. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say, just because I wrote this book that I do all of this perfectly. I, I, I fail at all of this so often. Uh, but that's why this work that we do on ourselves about 
about acceptance, about giving people grace, about trying not to come at a situation with a judgmental heart. That's this work. Uh, and so that's why I think if we can say to ourselves, setting it up, like you said, like this is the layup to it. All right. I am in this person's life for a purpose. And maybe it's not that I am going to fix their life, solve the problem, make them even a better person necessarily. What is the role that I am playing in order to help them be the best version of themselves, who they want to be? One of my favorite quotes is, I'm becoming who I'm becoming. And that again, is an evolution. We should never stop learning that. Uh, but meeting someone where they are gives you the opportunity uh, to not only help them reach whatever goal it is that you've been brought in to do, but it also gives you the opportunity to challenge yourself and think about, you know, maybe the mirror that I'm looking into right now and maybe that moment is more powerful than the one that I'm stepping into in order to figure out an answer to a problem or be a solution for. And that's a long way, I suppose, of saying that you, it's a, it is about the grace. It's the grace of the moment. Uh, and knowing that you're not going to do it perfectly and you don't expect them to do it perfectly but you're willing to be there and see one another for who they are in those moments that are building blocks. Hmm. You've been in a motherly role really your entire life and now even more so raising your own child. For someone who's been around parenting and seen it done incredibly well and very poorly, what, what do you think we, as we raise our kids, are making a mistake of doing and we don't even know it because we think we're doing the right thing but sometimes it takes a third party who loves the child to recognize oh gosh i wish i could tell you this about the way you're raising this child so what are we doing to our kids that we don't even know that we're doing that you've seen so often in your own work yeah. and then secondly for someone who's seen it done so well so frequently what what can we do to make sure that we do it even better going forward as parents or grandparents or just people who love little ones in our lives I look forward to the day, John, that I actually become a mom. I that that hasn't happened yet for uh, for me, and I, I I can't wait. I really can't. I I can't wait to maybe play that role one day. I always say that um, mothering is a verb that people mother in a lot of different ways, and I feel like I've been blessed to mother in a lot of different ways up until this moment in my life. But one thing that I learned as a nanny taking care of so many different children uh, and seeing so much because the nannies tends to see things that the parents don't sometimes. Yes. Um, one lesson, and I do talk about this in the book too, uh, was a little girl that uh, was struggling with the, with the intensity in which she felt she needed to perform in school. And, and, she was falling, crumbling under that pressure. And one particular night I was there when she crumbled and I laid with her on the floor while she just let her heart fully just flow. Mm. And I realized that her parents had never seen this from her. They did not witness this moment, but I had been given a gift. 
And now here I was having to make a big decision. I had to keep her trust, the words that she shared with me, her feelings, but also be able to go to her parents and say, I'm seeing something that we need to work on together. And I did end up going to them and saying, you know, this is a moment I had with her and how can we support her? Not attacking because it wasn't the parents' fault. It was something they didn't realize was going on. And I wanted to help be part of that solution. And so I do believe that sometimes we need to look to the village as parents and and ask the people that are part of our children's lives to be honest with us when they feel something or see something or hear something because they're not doing us any favors by keeping it a secret uh, if there's there's something that we need to tend to and sometimes our village sees it more clearly than we do beautiful and i know the story you're referencing and i think you may have saved that little girl's life so uh, it's a big deal i mean the work you do matters so we're going to take a deep breath right now, and we're going to shift gears from your mighty work into our work collectively called the Live Inspired Seven Questions. These are seven questions, Florence, and that we ask all of our guests, all of the authors we've had on the show. So buckle up, get ready for the ride. <laughs> Question number one, what's been the most influential or most impactful book you've ever read? The Bible. <laughs> what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl? that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I wish I was more fearless. Really? I, I wasn't as edited probably, which that scares me thinking that I was more edited. I, I, I gosh, I, I say everything that I'm thinking, I feel like half the time, but I think I was a little more uncensored. I, I, I trusted, I think, you know what? I just, as I'm saying this out loud, gosh, I'm, I'm having a, an aha moment. I think I <laughs> myself. I trusted myself more when I was younger than I do now. Mm. Trusted my instincts more. That's awesome. I appreciate that. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of getting one thing that matters, one item, what's that one item that you come running back outside with? There's a picture of uh, my Nana and Papa's hands uh, when uh, right, a year before my Papa died, my Nana, my Papa's hand on top of my Nana's hand. That that says everything about uh, life, family, love. I'd save that. How many years did they have together? 64. What a story. <laughs> if, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous Chicago day, not many to choose from, so better pick carefully and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? My great-grandmother, my great-grandmother, my Nana's mom. Uh, I never knew her, but she was a woman ahead of her time. And the way that my Nana used to talk about her, I, I was always inspired by yeah. how she loved. She was interviewed once because she was a businesswoman. Uh, and she said, I couldn't sleep at night if I knew that I had a piece of bread that someone else needed. She said it in a broken Italian. I remember my Nana telling me that story about her when I was younger. And I remember thinking this woman was special. How she loved was special. If I could sit on a bench with my Nani, I mm. have a lot of questions for her. What's the best advice your great grandmother, your grandmother, your mother, mm -hmm. or anybody else that you've ever looked up to gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is, this too shall pass. Who gave it to you? Nana. Yeah. She said it. I, I, 
oh, my whole life, my whole childhood, she would say this too shall pass. And she's, she was right. Anything that I've ever survived in my life, as painful as it may have seemed at the time, it, it always does pass. Even if it passes as painfully as a kidney stone, <laughs> it passes. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I've never heard that on the show before. We've done 600 episodes or so. It's only been shared one time and it was shared by me. This too shall pass. When my mother on the 500th episode asked me, John, what's the best advice you've ever received? And it was this too shall pass. And she said, who gave it to you? And I said, mom, it was you. Oh. It to me. So I love the advice and I love the ladies in our life who taught it to us. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? If you could go back in time and whisper some encouragement or wisdom to yourself at Bradley University, what would you say? That teacher that told you when you were younger, this is a true story, wrote on my test that I was stupid. That teacher was wrong. And please don't spend the next X amount of years of your life repeating what that teacher said to you and you believing it. That teacher was wrong. Florence Ann. So as we talk about the author of the book, Build Your Village, and a change agent for good in our lives, question number seven is this. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? At the end of my life, I, someone could say about me that she knew how to love. I will have completed my mission. Florence Ann Romano built a village around individuals who knew how to love, received it well, gave it well, and taught others to do likewise. I want to thank you for spending some of your time with us today. Thank you. I'm all teared up here. My heart is all a flutter. Uh, this was probably one of the top, most powerful conversations I've ever had in my life. Thank oh you. Oh, gosh. Well, my friends, Florence and Romano reminded us of the importance of doing life together. We use that expression a lot around here, doing life together. One of my favorite things she shared during our time together was this. If you haven't taken notes yet, you may want to write this one down. I wasn't asking for someone to fix my problem. I was asking for them to walk next to me through it. Not around it, but through it. Isn't that true for all of us? We can't always have the problem fixed or removed immediately, can we? So maybe what we're looking for from our friends, from our loved ones, from our village, from our family, is the courage of them to come alongside of us and just to sit with us, to be with us, to walk with us through our daily journey in life. If you enjoyed hearing about the importance of doing life in community and you are looking for tips and ideas on building out your village, do not miss my conversation with my guest, Radha Agarwal. Radha shared her life-changing strategies, her tips, and her tricks to making friends. It will light a fire within you, and it will give you a sense of greater belonging in society. You're going to love it. Check it out with Radha, episode 98, or let your fingers do the walk and join me online right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast, and we'll have a link for that episode right there. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our village. I want to thank you for believing like I do that the foundation here is firm. The headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come and you belong. Your life is a gift and the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift. Celebrate it and live inspired.
You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley Companies.com. 